0: Well, good morning, church. Before we begin in the Gospel of John, for those of you who did not get uh, a bookmark, make sure you grab one of these so that you're able to follow along with the preaching calendar over the next few months here as we work our way from the birth of Christ that we began two weeks ago, and then we'll conclude on Resurrection Sunday with the resurrection um, through the Gospel of John. But... Uh, This morning, I want to make a few introductory comments uh, before we begin looking at John. First, I do want to thank uh, the worship team as well as uh, those who've served in sound and those who are helping with projection behind the scenes. Uh, You have faithfully served another year um, and helping this church be able to continue worshiping the Lord. And, and I know that oftentimes Judy, um, and worship team and Tim and and many of you who put in hours behind the scenes are doing so, and you're not expecting accolades or thank yous, but still, I think I speak for this entire congregation when I say thank you uh, to those of you serving behind the scenes. So, The other uh, piece I would like to to say here, as we turn from 2023 to 2024, this is a good moment to reassess our our Bible reading for the coming year. And uh, as Tim has done prior to myself, uh, to encourage you to pick up a, a Bible reading plan that you will go through this coming year. And, and I know that for many of you, that can be intimidating because you feel like it's overwhelming with, your, with the type of schedule you have, perhaps, to, to work in reading three or maybe four chapters a day. Uh, but I, I do want to encourage you to pick up something, whether you're just going to take this next year to go through the New Testament only, or take the month of January and work your way through the Gospel of John. Um, I, this is a Bible plan that I have used. There are some out on the table and in the, in, in, the rack there, it's called the Bible eater. You work your way through the old Testament and the new Testament and the book of Romans twice. And it's a, uh, a plan that allows you to skip some days. So if you're like me, where you have days where it's just not going to work, it, it even builds in days where you, where you can skip some. I'll also send out an email. The ESV um, has put out a, a podcast that's coming out that I would like for you to look for. If if you're busy um, commuting in the morning and, and, and it would be a, of an advantage to you to listen uh, to, to the Bible being read to you, they have some uh, podcasts that are coming out that will work you through the Bible that are read by Kristen Getty, Keith Getty's wife. Uh, who wrote In Christ Alone, also by uh, one of my uh, uh, pastors who's influenced me a lot, which would be Ray Ortland. He's going to be reading one of the the versions, so I will send this out. Um, Please drop by the table. There's also blended reading plans or chronological reading plans in the rack out there by the front door. Lastly, I have one more thing. We'll get to John, don't worry, but one more thing. Some of you come into this church and have come into this church since I've been here and God has wired you in such a way that it takes no effort for you to just make friends. That you just come in here and because of of your natural, you know, bent, you just, next thing you know, you've got friends, you're busy with this Bible study, you're busy meeting with this group, you're busy uh, in the life of the church. Others of you come into this church and you maybe been here four, five, six, maybe even a decade and you feel Like you're still on the outskirts. You feel like nobody really knows you. And you might come on Sunday. You might leave quickly on Sunday. But you kind of feel aloof. And so my encouragement to you who easily make friends here. Look out for those people here who might tend to remove themselves on the side. But I have a further encouragement and a challenge to you people in 2024 who feel like maybe you're the person who tends to hold back a little bit more, my encouragement to you is for you to take the initiative. It would be for you to be the one who might invite another family over for dinner or ask somebody to go out for coffee or hang around a little bit longer after service here to try and get to know people. I would love that every member in this church, everybody who comes here regularly as an attender, that you would say, I have a handful of folks who know me really well, that if I reached out to them and texted them and said, would you pray for me? They'd say, yes, I'll be praying exactly for that. And you would feel comfortable enough to share what it is to pray for. So my encouragement for you in 2024, and part of our membership as we're looking at membership for 2024, is for those of you on the outskirts to take the initiative. It might be difficult, but I'm encouraging you to do it. Okay, sermon number two, the Gospel of John. We are looking at chapter 1, verses 19 through 51, and I'm going to ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word if you are able. It's found on page 833 of the the Bibles provided under the seats. I will pause at verse 34, and we will look at the rest later. So my encouragement... uh, for you to read along with me and and to always have your Bible open so that you can make sure that I am, what the text is saying is what I'm saying. I want there to be a connection. Thomas is not making this up this is coming from God's word. Okay the gospel of John chapter 1 verse 19 and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they asked him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. John bore a witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he, on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we know that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And so... We pray that your word would land in hearts of stone and bear much fruit, turning them into hearts of flesh, we ask this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, there's not going to be much beating around the bush. We need to get right to it. We begin this morning, first with a setting, followed by the characters, four days, first the setting, then four days. Now, the setting is seen right there in verse 28. It's not a boring little detail. I'm going to read it to you again. It's important. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. This is important for us to catch. You know, the saying is true. Those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it. Yeah, it's true. And it's true when it comes to economics. It's true when it comes to war. It's true when it comes to um, everything from politics to what I do and stub my toe. We have to learn the lesson of history. And if we forget it, we're doomed to repeat it. In the Bible, we see this often. We see this pattern over and over where people who forget... Go back to the same awful circumstance and the Bible shows us again and again people who should know better They forget their history and then they repeat the same thing that they did before or even their forefathers had done before We see that happen again and again and again Those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it But did you know that also the Bible has another thing that repeats? Sometimes in the Bible history is repeated on purpose So that we could say those who remember their history will appreciate their future. Those who remember their history will be blessed by understanding what God is reenacting or redoing for the future time. So as God's people, if you'll rewind to the book, second book of the Bible, Exodus, as God's people, you ladies who've been in Exodus, this is fresh on your mind, as they were leaving out of Egypt, Out of the slavery and the bondage in which was going on there, God's people are then entering into the wilderness. Because of unbelief, a period of 40 years passes where the first generation dies off. The younger generation then is entering into the promised land. Okay? And if you recall, they go through the Red Sea, out of slavery, through the Red Sea into the wilderness. But then they go from the wilderness into the promised land through the river Jordan. Remember this? And as that scene is portrayed, they're entering a land of the wilderness. They're entering into a land that is flowing with salmon and with Pinot Noir and with dug fir trees, right? Okay. A land flowing with milk and honey. We're talking about Israel after all. But what we see there is they're entering this land. They cross over and they, the, the river is stopped up so that they can make it through And and the picture is that God is going to go with them. He's going to provide for them. He's going to bless them as they come into this land flowing with milk and honey. And as this happens, John is is, is going to be showing us here with John chapter 1. We find ourselves again on the wrong side of the river. Where John is at in this moment, if we had a map up here, I would show you. they're, They're back on the east side of the river where they are supposed to get over to the west side of the river into the promised land. But John intentionally brings us back to the east side, the wrong side, the wilderness side. And it's with intention. It's purposely to repeat, to show that with Christ come, a new exodus comes. In effect, to repeat history. Not doomed to repeat it, but to help us see The main thing you need to catch this morning is this. John is reenacting the crossing over the Jordan so that it will be pictured that a new leader has come to save his people. You recall how that worked? The people are in the wilderness. They make it into the promised land with the new leader, with the original leader, it was Joshua. Joshua carries the people across. He leads the way into the promised land. And now... What we're going to see is this new leader, Jesus, not Joshua, will take the people onto the other side. Now, important little keynote, Jesus' name is Joshua. Yeshua, 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 Jesus. Jesus is refiguring, reenacting, so that those, not who forget their history, but remember their history... They're the people who are able to appreciate what God is doing in the future to bless them. It's how this is working. God is getting ready to do something very big. And so this key figure on the wilderness side, John the Baptist, he's saying, let's get ready. Let's clear the way. And then he begins here this morning with four pivotal days that that go one right after the other, in which each one we will see identifying key figures. Much like if you and I, we opened up the book for the first time, we're reading a novel. And so you get the setting, and then maybe you turn to page two, and then you get key figures that are introduced. And so we're going to turn the page four times, four days, where we're going to move from John the Baptist, day one, to Jesus the Lamb, day two, to Peter and Andrew, day three, to Philip and Nathaniel, day four. So four days in a row, this is the order. We begin with day one, John the Baptist. So first, let us return to, to, to John, who is, uh, as we know from the other Gospels, he is a, he's a bit of a hippie. He's in hippie clothing. He's eating hippie food, if, as it were. Uh, John the Baptizer purposely dressed up this way. He's invoking Old Testament imagery of the prophet Elijah, who dressed in camel's hair. And out here in the wilderness, he's, he's drawing a crowd. Some people have come from far away. People are gathering here together. This was not a a quick journey. Uh, This wasn't a a two-minute drive in the car. This was hours and hours to get out in the wilderness where they were because this is 20-some miles from Jerusalem. And and, and And we know that from Matthew 3, from Jerusalem and Judea and all the region about Jordan, they were all going out to him. This is a big deal. And along with these crowds, of course, some of these pesky religious leaders come. The priests and the Levites come and they're asking, Who are you? What are you doing? Uh, What exactly are you up to? We we saw that in verse 19 through 21. Let's see that again, where we read, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And the way we see this phrased here is the gospel writer is making it very clear. He confessed and he did not deny because here he is telling the truth. We read back in in verse 7 of John chapter 1 where John says that uh, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And then to answer these religious leaders, he confesses three things. I'm not the Christ. There's denial number one. I'm not Elijah, there's denial number two, and then I am not the prophet, the prophet. There's denial number three. Now remember, in in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses spoke about a coming prophet. That would be the prophet who is to come. Uh, That's the one that Moses says we should listen to, and John is saying, that's not me. Uh, That's not who I am. And so John the Baptist, I'm not sure if you caught this, he denies three times. Three times he denies. At the, at the end of the Gospel of John, we know of another figure. will be introduced here momentarily, Peter, who denies three times as well. Now, when Peter denies Christ three times, what's he doing? He's decreasing Christ, and he's trying to save his skin. But in contrast, John the Baptist, this three-time denial, John, I think, is helping us see this is elevating. This is lifting up Jesus. This is making much of this one to come, this coming Lamb. So we need to keep in mind from other passages that even though John the Baptist denies these things, there is an element of truth to each of these. Now listen, John the Baptist, he is not the prophet, not the Deuteronomy 18 prophet, but he is, he is, oh yes, he is a prophet. He is a prophet and considered to be the last Old Testament prophet. And Jesus says that he is an Elijah type figure to come. Um, Jesus speaks of him this way. Not, not to say that, that John the Baptist is like Elijah reincarnated, but to say that he's coming in the spirit of Elijah, that, that here is an Elijah type figure, this John the Baptist. And, and, and also I said a couple weeks ago that John is, even though he says, I'm not the light he, he does, he is spoken of as a light. Not the light, but a light, because in John chapter 5, we'll see Jesus says that John was a, a, a shining lamp. And so I, I, the way I figured it was like this. Maybe John the Baptist is like a, like a flashlight or a, a, a torch that is aiming to the sun so that he can say, don't look at me, look at the sun who's come. Um, but John, he has every reason here to say things that would puff himself up. He's a great example of humility. He could have easily said, yep, I am the greatest of all. Nobody born among men is greater than I, because after all, this is what Jesus says of John the Baptist in Matthew 11. But in full humility, he steps back to say this in verses 26 through 27. Look at how he says, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, even me or even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. So, church, you need to understand this. You you need to hear this. Your pastor, your elders here, your leaders in this church, some of the people in your life or from your past who you think, these people are right up next to Jesus. These people, they are so godly. You need to know that they are not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus' feet. I am not worthy to take Jesus' coat. I am not worthy to be a waiter on Jesus, to even get him a glass of water. And a proper response for all of us is to have that exact same attitude. We are a people who are not worthy to do the lowest of jobs for Jesus Christ. But the amazing thing is, Despite this fact, we are called, and we'll see this even hinted through John, we will be called as a people of God to do amazing things for him. But we do that with an understanding that we, in and of ourselves, there's nothing in me that makes me worthy of any of this. And so John, as he's telling these religious leaders, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the prophet, I'm not Elijah, the question is, who are you, John? Well, he says here in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now this passage is a quotation from Isaiah 40 and where that passage has in view the coming return of the Lord. Once the new Exodus is accomplished. Um, But they they don't seem to be fully satisfied with this answer because if, if, if you're not the Messiah, come on, what are you doing? Why are you baptizing people? If you're not the coming Messiah, and John explains, look, this is symbolic. What I'm doing is symbolic. This is just water. But there's coming one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John is then making clear. There is no doubt. He's making way for the anticipated Messiah to come. Don Carson says that in the first century, the first century was rife with messianic expectation. In other words, during the first century, there was a buzz going about the people saying, when will the Messiah come? Is he here? Has he come? Are you it? Are you it? Who's here? Who is he? Where is he? Is he coming? I think he's going to be here any moment. There was a spirit, a buzz. And John says, I'm one who's been sent to clear the way, to make ready the people's hearts, to call them to repent of sins and to, and to get ready for the coming Messiah, to repicture the people of God on the other side of the Jordan River, out in the wilderness, getting ready for a new exodus out of bondage and slavery to sin through our messianic leader who will carry us through to the other side of the promised land. So this is where we look now in detail at Jesus Christ, this coming lamb. Jesus the lamb in verses 29 to 31. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now again, our passage this morning that we're looking at here in John chapter 1, it covers four days in a row. This is day number two. This is day two that has come. And it is in the second day in which Jesus is coming sharply into view. The the words spoke of him here seem to be, uh, uh, to an outsider, a little bit enigmatic. The words and the phrases that John uses here, these are confusing. But to those who would have been steeped in the Old Testament, themes of lambs would have come to mind. After all, much of the diet of, of Israel had been subsisting off of lambs. So here's the one that provides the sustenance for you to have life, but so much more than that, because even as the Exodus is in view here, that would be my argument is that you would go back to where the lamb was most clearly used in the exiting out of Egypt, where the blood of the lamb was put over the doorpost so that all those who were in the home with the blood over their doorpost were saved from the wrath of the death angel, right? And but, but, but also, ingrained in their life would have been an understanding that, 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 that there was an atonement to be made for sin. That the Levitical laws had a, a sacrifice of a lamb over and over and over for, for sin. But, but further, beyond this, we see something you add, add to this. John the Baptist has already referenced the book of Isaiah The Old Testament prophet who John identified with saying, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. That was Isaiah 40. But we see John, he is identifying with the Jews out in the wilderness. They're entering the promised land in which lamb sacrifice was ingrained as they are followers of God. And Isaiah, as he's writing to the people to correct their worship and tell them about a sacrifice to end all sacrifices, Isaiah has many messianic themes, including the more well-known Isaiah 53. And so it seems most logical to me, if you're pulling in everything from the Exodus to the Levitical laws to Isaiah 53, that John the Baptist is perhaps, he doesn't perceive everything, doesn't know everything at this point, but but he has enough wherewithal, the Spirit has made it known to him, that here a lamb has come who will do exactly what John says Jesus does. This is all the quotation of Isaiah 53. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, So he opened not his mouth. And we read also there that this lamb was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was the sacrifice for our sin. Isaiah says this lamb will bear our iniquities. This all becomes shorthand when John says, here, is the lamb who takes away the sin. What Isaiah was doing in describing a new Passover lamb that ushers in the people into a promised land, you see the first Passover lamb? That was the getting out of slavery into the wilderness. This Passover lamb is the one who's carrying us from the wilderness into the promised land, the true promised land. The promised land that you and I have yet to fully see. And so if you're with us here this morning, And you have yet to behold this lamb, this Jesus. I want you to hear this morning the good news of Christ come. I I want you to hear something about this lamb that catches our attention. The writer of Hebrews says, "Every every priest he stands daily at his service, offering repeated sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this Christ had come." This Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins and he sat down at the right hand of God Meaning that the job is done Then the author of Hebrews says he was waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet For by a single offering he has perfected for all time. Those who are being sanctified Intuitively you and I know something how we live our lives day in and day out We know something We know that when we've done wrong, you and I, we have to do right to make up for it. There's just no other way around it. If we do bad and we mess up in one area, we want to do something to to turn that around, to feel better about ourselves. We we see this, don't we, when you turn on the news. Sometimes there'll be, and it, it could be with minor crimes, it could be with major crimes, white collar, blue collar, it doesn't matter. All of a sudden, somebody's image pops up. They've been, they, you have their mug shot. And then later, there'll be an interview with a neighbor or with a family member. And other people will say, I, I, I don't know what happened with this person. They were so nice. They were so kind. This was the type of guy or gal who sacrificed for other people. He, he would give you the shirt off his back. And the very people that we can see sometimes commit awful crimes. Maybe the very people who who, trying to make up for these type of crimes, will do tremendously wonderful, great things. Why? Because somehow in humanity's mindset, the scales must always be rebalanced. You know, even, even myself, if I've been not the kindest to my wife, I can say, well, this week I'm going to do the dishes uh, not just once, but ten times because I want to make up for how I've been this week. Am I the only one? Do, do, do you sense it? You, you kind of recognize I got to get, I got to right my wrongs. But, but I'm asking you this morning. What if there was one sacrifice that could take away all our sin? A sacrifice to end all sacrifices. John the Baptist says, behold, he's here. Jesus Christ, the lamb, slain for your sin. And and, and so this is the beginning of our walk with Jesus. And and maybe this is your homework here today. Maybe it's for you to behold Jesus. Jesus. To, to, to see him, to, to spend maybe this next month or so reading through the gospel of John, to, to say, I, I, I gotta see what this writer's saying about me and what, what he's saying about this lamb. Because if this is true, this changes everything. J- Jesus will change your life. This lamb will take away the sin that leaves you feeling like, I constantly have to rebalance the scales. Friends, if he's paid at all, there's nothing you can do but behold him and believe in him. And so if this is you this morning who have yet to, to, to do this, to consider this Jesus, there are fellow Christians in this room who would love to talk with you. I would love to talk with you after service. But for John the Baptist, at this point, the question is raised, okay, John, if you know this about Jesus, how do you know this? How is it that we, you're not just making this up? Well, John tells us exactly what happened. He says, I saw the Spirit of God come down and rest on him and remain on him. And it's fascinating because we know that the Spirit coming upon people in the Old Testament, we know that happens at points and times and occasions, but the Spirit never rests. The Spirit might come upon a person for a particular task, but then then is, is gone. But here we see the Spirit come and remain on Jesus, Jesus. here the Spirit lands, stays, remains, but also we'll see how this Spirit then, in chapter 3, verse 34, is given without measure. In other words, not just a portion of the Spirit, all the Spirit for all of us. This will become increasingly important as we are in Christ. And so now we'll see this pattern emerge with the apostles who also are going to partake in the ministry of the spirit. And we come first to see this with Andrew and Peter in verses 35 through 42. So we're, we're at the third day in a row here. We've gone from day one, day two, we're on day three. We'll move quickly through day three and four here. So day three, verse 35, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold, the lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to him, what, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. And then one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We've found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, Andrew plays a minor role in the Gospels. We almost don't hear a peep from him. Um, but Peter, of course, Peter, we're much more familiar with. Um, he, he is part of the inner three. He seems to be closest with Jesus when you have Peter, James, and John. And, and we find here that even with this third day, amazingly, John will lose followers as Jesus gains them. This is what's interesting to me. As I was thinking through this, if John the Baptist is doing his job, he's out of a job. If John the Baptist is doing the right thing and telling everybody, here's the real lamb that you need to follow, well, all of John's followers who went out to the wilderness to be with him will say, see you later. We're following the real lamb. We're going to go with him now. This friends is the pattern that should be repeated. You are aware we live in an era of celebrity pastors, celebrity ministries, and, and, and we can glean, and, and these things can be helpful, but I just want to encourage you, this pattern should happen over and over again. That John's disciples really need to become Jesus' disciples. Oh, that we had more and more Christians who do not, do not identify themselves in terms of who their preaching pastor is, or in, in terms of following a particular ministry, but being disciples and followers of Jesus' If we say, I go to John the Baptist Church and I identify myself as a follower of John, we subvert the flow here. The flow is to be a Christian, to be a disciple, is really to be a follower of Jesus. There are no Christians who are not followers of Jesus. Jesus is my chief shepherd. James and Dave and Tim, they're my under-shepherds. They're under Jesus And if they're doing their role right, what they're doing is they're pointing me, like John the Baptist, to Jesus. So that where my mind gets off and where I'm not seeing clearly, they're saying, Thomas, get your eyes back on the Lord. Get your eyes on Christ. This is the interesting progression that happens here when we follow suit with what John the Baptist is pushing them off The the interest then comes and it's it's found here with these first disciples and it's found in the verbs where we see come see and stay come see stay for all all who become followers of Jesus this is the right order so come to Jesus come to him see see what he does hear hear what he says and, and then remain stay with him stay with Jesus don't depart from Jesus. Uh, this word stay here is really important in the, in the gospel of John because it is sometimes translated as abide or remain. Sometimes it's translated as continue with, um, but this word is key and we'll see this again and again in the gospel of John here with Jesus' question, what are you seeking? And they, they could have answered this in so many different ways. They could have said, well, teacher, um, here's what we're looking for. We'd really like to grow in our holiness. Uh, what, what we're seeking is where's all the action happening? They could have said, "Teacher, we're seeking the kingdom of God. We're looking for a political victory." But here they say, "Jesus, where are you staying?" In other words, we're seeking to be with you, to abide with you, to remain, to continue with you, to stay with you. So, so Christian, I'm asking you this morning: Where do you seek, and what are you seeking? Do you seek comfort? Do you seek pleasure? Admiration? Success? Security? Control? Are you seeking predictability? What is it that you are seeking? These disciples seem to be content with remaining with Christ, to be with him. What would it look like for you and I this coming year to remain with Jesus? I'm asking pragmatically for you to think through this coming year. This is what it looks like for me to remain with Jesus. Ask yourself that question. Well, we, we see here not only Peter and Andrew, they're brought into this initial discipleship group, but now we turn um, and we find two other disciples that are brought in. Now we're looking at the fourth day. This is the final day where we find Philip and Nathaniel. Verses 43 through 51. There we read, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael, and he said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, "Can, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said I saw you uh, under the fig tree, do you believe? (laughs) You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. We're, we're going to hear from Philip more than Andrew in, in the gospel of John. And, and we will see um, in, in Acts, actually, that Philip, he becomes a traveling preacher. In fact, in Acts uh, chapter 8, that's where we find the Ethiopian eunuch he's traveling, and Philip is the one who, who interprets Isaiah 53 and says, I know about this lamb stuff. Let me tell you who the coming lamb is. And and, and yet, here, with Nathaniel, Nathaniel's an interesting character. He's an interesting disciple. He becomes uh, dismissive of Jesus because he's from Nazareth. Now, uh, we all understand there are certain parts of our nation, there are certain parts of our country, maybe even certain parts of Oregon. I was going to name names, but then somebody would say, well, that's where I'm from. I won't do it. Uh, but but uh, well, let me, let me say, can anything good come of, uh, out of Milwaukee? You know, it's kind of that, that thing. You know, I can say that because I come from there. But, but you understand there are certain places where they had a notorious name for themselves, Nazareth being one of those places. And... and and then Nathaniel somehow recognizes that Jesus saw him under the fig tree. I, I don't fully understand what is going on this moment. I know that Nathaniel recognizes that supernatural. He recognizes there was something that Jesus saw when he recognized him under the fig tree that, that reveals to Nathaniel that this, this is a, a man of God. This is, this is the king of Israel. This is the Christ who, who has come. He, he proclaims this great thing. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, now being that we just recently, and if you didn't catch it, go, go back a, a few, about a month ago now. Go back and, and see where I preached in Genesis 28. I refer you back to my sermon there because it deals with Jacob's ladder. During that sermon, we saw that Jacob, he, he's alone. Jacob, this Old Testament figure, he's out there. He's kind of unsure what this future holds for him. He's running literally for his life. He he was in, in a bad spot. He's unsure if God would be with him. And he is a man of deceit and trickery. And yet in the middle of his life's crisis, God shows up and reveals that I will be with you. He came down to him, not in judgment, but in blessing. There was this staircase, this stairway that comes down out of heaven, a ladder, if you will. And this stairway is envisioned like a portal into heaven, a place where God is coming and going. The angels are coming and going. And we find it there that Jesus unequivocally says that stairway, that ladder, that's me. I am that way. And so you will see heaven opened up, Jesus says. That's the portal. It's opened up to heaven. You will see uh, angels going up and down. There's the reference to Jacob. And then if we missed it, Jesus says, here is a man in whom there is no deceit. And just briefly, Jacob's name was uh, essentially, he's a trickster, he's a deceiver. And so when Jesus looks at Nathanael and says, here's one in whom there is no deceit, um, we're referenced back to Jacob. We're referenced back to Jacob's ladder and, and Jesus is pulling in all of this because he's helping Nathanael see. You know, Jacob had a dream. Jacob saw the portal opened up in his dream. He sees angels coming and going. But but Jesus says, when you look at me, Nathanael, what you're seeing is the real thing. This is not a dream. This is the real reality. The stairway representing God with us. The word made flesh. The lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Because... The staircase comes down, not just to Nathaniel, not just to the fishermen here, not just to the disciples, but to you and I this morning, this Jesus Christ, the lamb that takes away your sin and my sin has come to you to abide, to remain, to dwell with you. And so as we conclude this first chapter, it's so rich, it it, it contains a Baptist confession. Um, some of you will get my pun, but but the confession of John the Baptist here. The confession first of who we are not, and the confession of who he is. And so my hope is as a church that, and especially you guys who've been with us going through the Apostle Creed, the Apostles' Creed, you'll see we here there are certain things we need to confess that we state, we believe. The confession of who we're not. We're not the light. We're not the Messiah. We're not the Savior. We're not ones worthy of undoing Jesus' shoes. We're not worthy of fetching his coat or getting him a glass of water. We are like those we read here now who know we want to follow Jesus. Where are you going, Jesus? We want to be with you. In Revelation, we find that the believers there follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's us. We are the ones who declare Jesus has the words of eternal life. And then we have a confession of who he is. He's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And in fact, if you'll just take all of these words that are mentioned regarding Jesus here, this is chapter one. i want to say these and then we're done. Look at the mosaic of words used to describe Jesus. Jesus is identified as the word, the life, the light, the lamb of God. He is the anointed of the Spirit, the one on whom the Spirit remained. He is the teacher, the rabbi. He is the Messiah, the Christ. He's the one on whom the law and the prophets spoke. He's the true ladder, the true ladder to heaven. He is the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Son of Man. All of this in just one chapter. What, do, what does all this mean? Well, it's going to take us the rest of the book to unpack what all this means. But So rich. Friends, we're not the Christ. Jesus is. He's the one in whom we shall come, whom we will see, whom we will stay with and remain with. In utter humility to the lamb who takes away our sin by declaring as Nathaniel does, he is the Christ. He is the king. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess along with John, we are not the light. We are not the Christ Christ. We are not the lamb, you are. And so this morning, because what John says is true, we say thank you. We want to give thanks and praise to the lamb who has come, who was slain in our place. And Father, we want to praise you that you've made straight our paths, that you have cleared the way for us to hear and receive and believe the truth of Jesus Christ. Be with us even as we sing in closing. In Jesus' name, amen.